In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we turn back to the very last portion of the lesson from 2 Samuel. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The word of the Lord. I wonder over the years how many people have taken up much of an interest in Uriah the Hittite. I have read some pretty insightful and historically defensible documented realities about this man who only gets a brief mention in the biblical text. Clearly he had a beautiful wife. And we have every reason to assume his wife was a devout Israelite who practiced the religion of the chosen people of God and lived her faith in the one true God of Israel. We can assume that because her husband was simply a stellar example of a Gentile convert to Judaism. Was this a result of courtship evangelism? We have no idea about the relationship and how it grew. Whether Uriah first proved his character and his spiritual focus before winning the heart of Bathsheba, a daughter of the people of the Hebrews, or whether it was a result of his relationship with her. But we know that her husband was as high a character of a person as you and I will ever meet on the pages of the scriptures. And that clearly is saying something. Uriah was a brave warrior. He was proven in battle. He was a moral man of character and dignity. He proved that in resisting David's deviancy and his manipulation. His men and the men of the armies of Israel the men of his king were out in the field. Two successive nights, either under the influence of alcohol, he would never have dreamed of spending the night with his own wife in his own bed because he felt a personal conviction that that would be disrespectful and undermining of the morale if word of that ever got back to his own troops in the collective armies of Israel. He was not only a champion on the battlefield, but his exploits also led to his promotion 
to being an esteemed leader amongst the warriors of a nation that was not always all that friendly with the nation of his birth. That in itself is exceptional on the pages of history. From everything we know about Uriah, he had adopted and invested himself fully in the religion of his adopted nation, the chosen people of the one true God. And when measuring blood-bought souls who are presented to us on the pages of the Bible, who trust the Savior God for forgiveness and for guidance for living, you will not find a better role model to study or a life style to pursue than Uriah. And this resulted, appropriately so, in his being a close friend and confident of the king he served. We're even told he was allowed to make his home near the royal palace. In fact, most likely for national security reasons, this man was allowed to live within sight of the veranda at the top of the palace. King David could look down upon his home anytime he wished. King David's brother in battle, brother in faith, brother in eternal life, a treasured member of David's court. Uriah would also likely have been, at times, a daily participant in the companionship of the king's daily life at court. It is very safe to assume that Uriah, on occasion at least, would have been included in those who were welcome at David's table for a meal. And it is not at all beyond the imagination or appropriate conjecture that there would have been occasion, perhaps some type of state dinner or holiday celebration where Bathsheba very likely accompanied her husband to the palace for a meal. David had every reason to not only love and trust Uriah, but also to invest fully in a well-rounded relationship with this man. And that's why the deviant nature of David's behavior toward a fellow believer and a truly righteous man is so breathtaking. David truly could have had anything that he wanted in the whole world at this moment when all of this was occurring. I mean that quite literally. David was pretty much one maybe of two or three of the most powerful and influential men throughout the inhabited world of his day as all of this was playing out. And David himself possessed a, a profound and abiding faith in his Savior God from early childhood. David confessed that faith already as a youth on the battlefield and multiple times in recorded scripture in situations of challenge and duress and dire consequence. He confessed it again and again profoundly and beautifully in so many songs that he composed at the Holy Spirit's inspiring. David knew 
and loved and lived the word of God in ways over which his subjects rejoiced, celebrating David as their good and gracious monarch. David had a reputation for being a man of faith and exceptionally high character throughout all the nations of the world in his day. And Scripture records his noble responses to moments of challenge where his life was in the balance. Multiple times with the king that preceded him who wanted to kill him and other times when powerful people were wishing to do him evil. He always and only took the high road with verbal responses of faith to these people that when we hear them, they are so profound in their expression of trust of God that you and I, as everyday believers in our Savior God, hear them and, and read them and think them almost superhuman by comparison to what we would be thinking in the moment. And yet, this one season of life, David made the choice to not go out with his men to make war. He chose not to lead his armies in person. And the king got bored. David got bored and he began to take an interest in one of his best friend's wives, whom clearly he began to enjoy watching bathe from his high perch of his palace. And by the time David was done conniving and scheming regarding Bathsheba and his dreadful fornication with her, the king would murder his beloved commander and friend, along with a number of other innocent members of the armed forces of Israel. David would also cause the death of his own son, conceived with Bathsheba in their illicit affair. And he would make an absolute stench of a mess of his own reputation and that of his nation and, most importantly, of his beloved Savior God. He would experience profound, you could even say devastating, emotional and spiritual depression over his cover-up and denial of all the grievous sins he had committed. And he would not only set in motion, but he would all but encourage the devastating infighting and immorality of his royal house of descendants that would one day lead to not only his own children rebelling against him, but one of his sons calling upon the fighting men of Israel to openly rebel against him in civil war that again cost tens of thousands of lives. Why? Why, David, why? Your Savior God, David, told Samuel the prophet in your youth when he came thinking he was going to anoint one of your brothers to be the next king of Israel, that you were his choice because you were a man after his own heart. You were such a hero of faith. 
Such a blessing to so many people. Your rule and administration of government over your people and so many other nations is considered one of the most moral and benevolent of history. All of the history of humanity. And millions and millions of people over thousands of years after you have lived have known your name and studied your many accomplishments that were already a reality at this point of your life. You were one of the rare handful of human beings that the Spirit chose to tap on the shoulder and use for the purpose of creating words, and in his case also music to those words, and other writings that would be considered for all of history the inspired word of God himself. Inspired word for others to learn about their Savior God. How, David? How could you, you possibly of all people, fall so far so quickly into such immorality, such debauchery, such deviancy? Why would any of us actually wonder that? If each of us were to be honest, we would have to admit that in the depths of our hearts there is extremely similar darkness lurking to the shameful darkness that prowled the depths of David's heart and soul and mind in the moment that is in front of us. And yes, even though we share his faith and confidence in his God, we know that we also share with every other human being that has ever lived or will ever live that same sinful human nature which we're born with. All David really did in that moment was prove something a political philosopher would coin as a phrase so many thousands of years later. This simple truth, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When the balance tips in any believer's life and heart toward deliberate sin and our sinful nature gets that whiff of reality, that inappropriate, selfish, godless appetites are about to be satisfied There is truly no telling to what depths of immorality, rebellion against God, the devil will gladly partner with us in driving us down to, even when that evil and immorality requires acts of hatred, violence against fellow believers. And look at the costs The first cost that comes to my mind in regard to all of this? How many people in David's day? How many people over the course of the history of God's believing people have been led to be shaky about their faith, about their commitment to God, their understanding of faith, 
questioning because of David. What's going on in our relationship with God? And can we even trust him to give us the strength and the fortitude, even when we're invested in the scriptures, to, fall, to not fall to such depths of immorality and chaos? It clearly also cost a lot of lives beyond the souls that it may have cost over the years. And David's losing his mind for that stretch of life all started with David's jealousy and callous disregard for the life and the person of Uriah, who ironically embodied every last value, spiritual and material value that David honored and celebrated as blessings of God and his saving word. I don't believe there is any other true story on the pages of history that is more ugly and ironic than this one. If you wish to debate that with me, I'll warn you ahead of time that exploring the realities of history to find one that would be worse would not be a very positive and encouraging study. But if you want to engage in it, I'm willing to go down that road with you. And yet, and yet, at this very moment, King David is enjoying all the blessings of heaven, along with Uriah and Bathsheba. And the child that was conceived in fornication and taken in death by God as partial punishment for David's abject evil. No, history does not record that David ever spent one moment incarcerated for his atrocities. But the reality is, as you look over the pages of history, very seldom does someone at David's level of power, considered to be a divinely righted monarch, ever actually pay in this life for any stretch of time, any human-determined sentence for the evil they have perpetrated. But the long list of consequences God pronounced upon David and his descendants because of David's acts listed in these verses is long and profound. And yet, when the prophet Nathan, David's personal pastor, confronted his king about his sins, and David repented to his pastor, Nathan. Immediately upon that confrontation, there was not even a hint of a moment of uncertainty as Nathan immediately pronounced to him, you are forgiven and you will not die. Not die physically in the next years or, and certainly not die eternally because of this sin. Clearly, from everything that we've read here about David, this was not something he had earned by anything he had done or would ever do. This was about God's mercy and God's grace being completely unconditional and totally committed to saving human souls. David was still allowed to be the ancestor of the Messiah. 
Great David's greater son would, would live perfectly and die innocently as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, yes. But also David's sin, this very awful sin. Your sin. My sin. David believed in his Savior God's unrelenting kindness and love. Along with his promises of resurrection after this life and the profound peace and fulfillment of perpetual bliss in the eternal life of heaven. David clearly was one absolutely self-destructive mess of a sinner. He could make his case up against the Apostle Paul for the position for which Apostle Paul declared himself the chief of sinners. And yet David recovered from his moment of mind-bending sin to believe. To live a life that proclaimed his faith and glorified his heavenly Father, his Savior God. When you and I read the gospel for the day, and it clearly once again lays out for us what we've had since Moses came down from Mount Sinai, a very clearly definite, definite delineated will of God for our moral lives in regard to sexual morality, in regard to hatred and murder and all the other things that Jesus presents to us in that gospel lesson. Just on the hearing it. Everybody in this room today could see the contrast that that life paints against the world in which we live on a daily basis. But don't pretend for a moment that hasn't been the world that's always existed. The majority of the people at any moment on the face of the earth have rejected God's will for their lives, have rebelled against this expectation of God that the people he has created will live his will in the best interest and blessing of each other. Don't look away. When verses like this cause your heart to burn with embarrassment over the irony and the ugliness of your own sins as a believer, acknowledge them to your Savior. Perhaps also take some time to invest yourself in acknowledging them with the people that they've hurt. Anyone damaged by the choices you've made and the words that you've spoken. Apply God's gifts of righteousness from his Son to every last one of those sins, just like David did. And then ask the Holy Spirit to guide you to be your divine accountability compliance partner in helping you live a life of faith and confession that overcomes sin every day. Make it your effort, your desire, your intention. Not because you plan to earn anything from God in regard to your salvation or earn any special blessing someday in heaven because that's out of the question 
but make it your daily investment and your interest out of love for your Savior and in gratitude for everything He has done for you to make every day you live from this moment a better day in regard to living God's expectations than any day that's come before. Do it because, like King David, you have come to see and own and confess the irony and the ugliness of your own personal evil. And like David, you are so profoundly amazed at God's grace and commitment to you that you make all your days all about thanking Him, giving Him glory, confessing His saving name. Until that moment, when he finally embraces you in eternity and makes you perfect. Amen. Please stand. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.